Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. This is episode number 43, and I'm recording this episode on Super Bowl weekend. So as much as I like to be getting ready for the festivities and drinking beer, podcast recording comes first. And they have a wide-ranging show this week, touching on a whole variety of timely topics. But before I jump into that, I have a special announcement. I've been posting daily financial videos on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram. They're only about two to three minutes long, and they usually cover something timely and relevant to your financial life. My goal is for them to be in plain English and somewhat entertaining, as entertaining as a personal finance video could possibly be. If you have not checked them out already, be sure to check out and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I'll include links to where you can find my daily videos in the show notes in this week's podcast. My talking points this week will discuss the timely topic of how solving the college tuition puzzle is only getting harder. We'll also discuss an important quote from Howard Marks, the legendary founder of the multi-billion dollar credit fund, Oak Tree Capital Management. And as always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listeners' questions. And with that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So fights over plagiarism and anti-Semitism on campus and pushback to diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are making headlines, but too few people are discussing the issue that could truly threaten the future of higher education. Tuition costs have grown exponentially for years. College tuition rose 12% on average annually from 2010 to 2022. According to data compiled by the National Center of Education Statistics and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, after adjusting for inflation, college tuition has increased 747% since 1963. To afford the astronomical price of admission, many students must take out an insurmountable level of debt. There has been a movement over the past few years to have government step in and forgive many borrowers' educational debt burden. Frustration over how to handle this ballooning $1.77 trillion debt has channeled taxpayers' ire at the government for offering large loans to teenagers with no income and at the students themselves for borrowing money without a sensible repayment plan. While there is plenty of blame to go around, I believe that our colleges and universities are at the heart of the problem. These institutions have been rapidly increasing their tuition while failing to adequately prepare students to earn an income sufficient to pay down their debt. All the while, they are sitting on a large tax-free endowment, in some instances amounting to billions of dollars. This perfect storm of issues has caused students and their parents to rethink how to approach life after high school. From my vantage point as a wealth advisor, my conversations with families about college planning have changed drastically. Most of the shift has been spearheaded by my clients who now would like to tackle the college conundrum more creatively than just funding a 529 college savings account. One trend has been to shorten a student's undergrad time to the bare minimum, 
saving money in the process. This has been especially prevalent among students who know that they want to pursue graduate school after college. A client actually recently told me that his son will be fulfilling all his college requirements part-time over a two-year period while receiving elective credit for intense religious study outside of traditional college environment. His child plans on um, taking the LSAT and going to law school once he completes his college requirements. A friend reached out to me last year with a creative request. He asked me to sit on the board he created to evaluate the proper usage of trust funds he set aside for his children. The purpose of this money is for his kids to start a career after high school. This might be the traditional way by paying for college tuition, but it might not. The kids can use the money to start a business or pursue any other experience that will help them get started in life. My role is to be an independent arbiter along with two other parties to decide whether the child is being responsible and can gain access to these funds based on their plans. My friend's insight is that it may be 15 years before those college bills are due. And in that time, he says, I envision the higher education paradigm radically changing. Certificate programs will probably be become far more popular in the coming years. Many of my contemporaries are returning to school decades after college graduation to obtain training and a certificate to make themselves more marketable. Learning how to code, build a website, or acquire other skills that allow someone to be in demand in a growing field may dramatically increase one's income at far less than the cost of a four-year degree. Finally, there's been increased interest in apprenticeships, which favor on-the-job training over classroom experience. In this model, trainees get a paid modest sum while learning a particular craft through working for skilled employers. They can go out to their own, go out on their own after developing the knowledge and expertise in a particular industry. The traditional example has always been in real estate, where understanding many aspects of the business requires practical experience and learning from more seasoned veterans. The more modern scenario is to start a business online, particularly by selling through industry behemoth Amazon.com. This requires hard work, deep industry knowledge, formal training sessions, and years of real life experience. The financial upside is limitless, and no amount of higher education will increase your likelihood of success. Over the past two years, I've noticed dozens of successful online-based businesses. Many of these business owners are young and savvy and have intentionally decided to forego a traditional four-year degree. For those not interested in blazing an alternate trail, consider utilizing a 529 account for the most tax-advantaged way to save for college tuition. Investing approximately $15,000 annually in your child's account starting at birth gives you the highest likelihood of being able to afford the full astronomical cost of the most elite private universities by age 18. And I said elite in quotation marks. But if our leading universities are counting on those checks to come forever, they should think twice. Americans are already making alternate plans. Institutions of higher learning need to be reformed or they face a very dark future. Okay, those are the talking points for this week. Bit heavy, I guess, this week, but, you know, just calling it the way it is. Um, and as a reminder, you could be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at about 7,500 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up by friends as well. Now for this week's quote, which is from Howard Marks. First, a bit about Marks himself for those who are not familiar. Howard Marks is an American investor and writer. He's the co-founder and co-chairman 
of Oak Tree Capital Management, the largest investor in distressed securities in the world. Marx is admired in the investment communities for his memos, which detail his investment strategies and insight into the economy and are posted publicly on the Oak Tree website, and that's free for anyone to check out. He has also published three books on investing. Interestingly, Warren Buffett once said, when I see memos from Howard Marks in my mail, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something, and that goes double for his books. A quote from Marks in one of his books is as follows. I tell my father's story of the gambler who lost regularly. One day he hears about a race with only one horse in it, so he bet the rent money. Halfway around the track, the horse jumped over the fence and ran away. This quote is so important because it points to the essence of risk, which is what we don't expect. The gambler at the racetrack doesn't expect the horse to jump over the fence. Similarly, the investor can prepare for the market volatility or an underperforming asset class. However, they can't prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic, the implosion of the economy during the great financial crisis, or even investment-grade bonds dropping 16% in 2022, while stocks also dropped around 20% in the same year. When it comes to risk, the key is understanding that risk is what we can't prepare for and what we don't see coming. Therefore, an investment strategy must factor in this reality, and investors should come to terms with the fact that they can't hedge against every event. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. And if you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, the first question. I'm 67 years old and just sold my house in Brooklyn for $2.5 million. What do I do with the cash? So it depends what your goals are. This question actually comes up several times a year in my practice. Many people may need to use part of the proceeds from the sale of their home to buy another home. And please note, the new home at this stage of your life should be much smaller and much cheaper than the home you just sold. If it's not, you're making a bad decision. Sometimes the funds are not needed to buy a new home, and all of it can be used to support your lifestyle in retirement. I've had clients who have gifted the proceeds or a portion of it to, to their kids to help them out financially. Others invest primarily in the benefit of their kids to inherit at their, at their death. Oftentimes, the goals with this money are a combination of many things. The key is defining what your goals are, and then you can implement a strategy to achieve those objectives. Next question. I came into some money. By some, I mean eight figures, which is life-changing for our family. Right now, only my wife knows about it. We literally told no one else, not even our children. What do you recommend? Who, who do you recommend we disclose this to? So I recommend telling as few people as possible. The people you do tell should only be people that need to know. <clears throat> the need to know list will include your professional advisors like your financial advisor, attorney, and CPA. And at some point, you could discuss it with your kids when it becomes relevant to their life. As the notorious B.I.G. once said, mo money, mo problems. People will come out of the woodwork and start harassing you when they find out you have some guilt. This includes family members, fundraisers, quote unquote friends, and others who think they are entitled to something. Remember, it's your money and no one else is entitled to it. What I will suggest is to give 10% to charity right off the top. And you should not drastically change your lifestyle. Otherwise, it will lead to spending down your assets because your appetite for gashmias or materialism will become insatiable and a lot of misery will follow that. And I wish you the best of luck. 50% of my assets are in real estate, 30% in cash, 20% in equities. Am I adequately diversified? So I don't know anything about you, so it's hard for me to give you a yes or no answer. 
Generally speaking, this is not a properly diversified portfolio. You seem to have way too much cash on hand and way, way, way too much real estate. The overall allocation to different asset classes is determined by investors' goals and personal situation. It should not be determined by market dynamics, the economy, and your feelings about a certain investment. Design your portfolio with that framework in mind. Next question, I'm a doc in a pretty intense job. I don't think I'll be able to work to a traditional retirement age. What should I do financially to prepare to retire by 50? You should save and invest a lot of money early in your career in a taxable account. You should be, be fairly aggressive until the last five years before you start cutting back on work. And I say fairly aggressive in terms of your investment strategy. The pool of assets will hopefully grow to a point where you will be comfortable withdrawing on them at 50 so you can start cutting back from your intense job. Since the funds are invested in a taxable account, there won't be withdrawal penalties like, like the retirement accounts. I would suggest continuing to save, invest, in your retirement accounts. And when you reach full retirement age, you could start start taking funds from these accounts as well. Like with all investing, the key is to start early so your money has a chance to grow. This is especially true if you want to cut back by age 50 since your money will have fewer years to appreciate. <clears throat> What's the best way to start a hedge fund? So this is a question that comes up from time to time when I'm speaking to college seniors looking to work in finance or career changers. I've mentioned this one in my recent financial planning videos, but it's worth repeating as it should also be informative of my views of hedge funds in general as well. The best way to the best way to get into the hedge fund business is to start the traditional path. Win the genetic lottery by being born to affluent parents who are Ivy League educated, live in an affluent community and belong to an exclusive club. You should probably go to a private elementary school and high school, Ivy League undergraduate school, then you should work at a bulge bracket investment bank for two years where you work about 120 hours a week, plugging numbers into Excel and making pitch books for your boss. You should then go back to get your MBA or better yet, a JD MBA in Ivy League school. Work at a massive hedge fund for a few years until you become a relatively senior person at this fund and develop an even larger Rolodex of contacts, building on your parents' connections and your friends from university. And you should wait until the market is skyrocketing and rates are low. Investors will be exuberant since everything is going up. Now is a great time to make the jump to start your own fund. Invite everyone you know and all your parents' connections to an exclusive presentation at their club to introduce the launch of your new fund that is open only to friends and family where you are targeting 15 to 20% annualized returns that you will never be able to achieve. Your strategy should be something esoteric sounding that most people won't understand, but will make them think that they are gaining access to something special. Try not to lose their money the first couple of years, which will allow you to raise even more money, mostly from large wealth management firms who are always looking to introduce new products on their platform that will allow them to charge an additional layer of fees above your already high fees. These firms will put your fund onto their focus list where they will promote, promote it to the thousands of advisors at the firm in order to funnel more money to your fund so they can collect even more fees. And speaking of fees, you should charge 2% on the several billion dollars you now have under management and the 20% of the profits that you will probably never earn. Your performance will suck going forward, but you'll still collect, be collecting hefty fees. So you've already been able to make uh, big purchases like a house in Greenwich, Vail, the Hamptons, and Miami. In the meantime, your investors are mostly sophisticated, so they can afford to lose money. Unless, of course, you manage the pension funds for teachers, policemen, or firefighters, but that's not your problem. 
In order to save face, blame the Fed, political climate, and China and or Russia for your bad returns. You'll still have another five to seven years before your fund will shut down due to heavy withdrawals. At that point, you could close the fund to spend more time with your family and to be an adjunct professor at your alma mater, which you're already a donate heavily to. Pick up Transcendental, Transcendental Meditation. I'm not as familiar with that. I only know that every billionaire likes to do it. And tell everyone how it has changed your life. Get an honorary degree from a university and tell them to pursue their passion even though you have not pursued yours. Wait for the next bull market and start your next fund. And by that time, you'll have a new crop of investors to raise money from and the lucrative cycle will continue. And I say lucrative, but that means lucrative for you, not necessarily your investors. Good luck on this amazing and fulfilling journey. Next question. I know that no one can predict the future, but say the market crashes in 2024. If that happens, will your advice be buy, buy, buy and wait, at, wait it out since the market moves in cycles or something like that? That's pretty much correct. Um, assuming you have a sensible portfolio and are at the stage of life where you should be saving and investing, then yes, buying more makes sense. However, I would caveat this statement by saying that you should never really be deciding to add money to the market. Rather, it should be added automatically unless you get a bonus or you realize you have too much cash in your checking account, in which case you should add it to your portfolio as soon as you can and not wait. Waiting to time when to put money into the market is imprudent. Furthermore, a market crash is immensely beneficial to investors with a long time horizon. It may not feel that way, but it's essentially a gift since it's a great opportunity when prices are relatively low. If one has the cash flow to max out the retirement accounts, full employee contribution and profit sharing plan as a business owner, is there ever any reason not to? Well, of course there is. Maybe you have a midterm goal you want to save for not just retirement and have a limited cash flow where you can't max out your retirement funds. As long as you are saving adequately for retirement, then it may make sense to invest funds elsewhere like a taxable account in order to achieve shorter term goals. And many of my clients do this. Don't feel bad for not putting in the total amount of about $69,000 total contribution through all retirement vehicles other than a cash balance plan. Investing outside of a retirement account has its place. Many people elect to invest in taxable accounts for various other goals beyond just retirement. Next question. I forgot to send my 1099 to my accountant and the IRS is penalizing me for not paying my full tax bill. Can I get this penalty covered by my CPA or financial advisor for negligence? I'd like to know what you're smoking because it must be pretty potent. You are the one that messed up, not your CPA or someone else. Pay the penalty and chalk it up as a learning experience. No one is covering your penalty for your negligence. Learn and grow from this experience and you will be a better and hopefully a more organized per person for it. Next question. My advisor switched firms and the new guy who took over the account is telling me my account has been mismanaged. He said the performance has been terrible and I should have been invested entirely differently. I don't know this new person, but his arguments seem compelling. Should I stay behind with the new advisor or move with my old one? So here's a good investment axiom that is often overlooked and not often understood. Never move anywhere for performance numbers. Performance figures are in the past and there's no level of certainty that they will consistently, they'll be consistent in the future. In fact, they will likely not be as good in the future. Next, per, next performance metrics can easily be manipulated by, selling, by the selling party to try to win business or for marketing purposes. 
I've shared stories in the past of former coworkers who built their business by tailoring reports to make past performance numbers look better or worse, depending on what they're looking to accomplish. Be wary of anyone who is so confident that they could have done better in the past. They likely could not have, and their ethics for asserting this claim should be questioned. Finally, you should work with someone you trust and that has a comprehensive wealth planning knowledge that goes beyond investing. This broad scope of knowledge around money, financial planning, investing, is, uh, and is trustworthy rather than chasing other performance will help you achieve your goals more than whatever this new advisor is trying to sell you. My hunch says that you should move with the old guy you've been working with for years. Next question. I'm a dentist with a pretty successful practice. I have a few dentists and hygienists working for me. I want to set up a retirement plan, but it seems costly and burdensome. Is it a bad decision to not set one up? It's not bad. Some will say that retirement plans are a good way of attracting and keeping talented employees. However, I have clients who explored opening a retirement plan and thought it was too costly and cumbersome for them to deal with and decided to just invest more heavily in a taxable account. Sure, you lose out on some tax benefits, but the whole purpose of a sa is saving and investing in the first place is to grow your wealth in order to achieve your goals. Everything else, including the tax benefits, are secondary. All that being said, there are a myriad of different retirement plans available, some cheaper and easier to set, set up than others. Even type, every type of plan has its trade-offs and the retirement landscape is vast with many different nuances and moving parts. It's worth getting a specialist involved to run through your options so you are making an educated decision regardless which path you choose. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Again, feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode. You can reach me at Jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. And if you can, take a minute to subscribe to this podcast and rate the show on Apple and Spotify. It will help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show as well. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.